0: You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. It is often said that a prosecutor's obligation is not to win a particular case, but to, big air quotes here, do justice. And most try to. And anyone who has watched even a few episodes of Billions can be forgiven for being skeptical about this prosecutorial obligation. You are many things. A man, a boy, a lawyer, a fighter, a student of the dark side of humanity, and a lover of jurisprudence. But there's one thing you're certainly not, an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. Drop your credentials at the guard's desk and get the out of here. Criminal defense attorneys, on the other hand, have only an obligation to zealously represent their clients whether in trying to win at trial or negotiate a favorable plea agreement. Many criminal defense attorneys are former prosecutors, however, and upon entering private practice, must learn quickly to single-mindedly pursue the interests of their client, irrespective of any abstract notion of justice. And of course, there are less esoteric aspects of the transition from prosecutor to defense attorney better lighting, the ability to send children to college, and so forth. My guest today is Miranda Hooker, who somewhat recently made the transition from being a federal prosecutor in Boston to a white-collar defense attorney at Pepper Hamilton.
1: I think the thing that's most difficult about being on this side, that you forget when you are in a USA, but that's also the most rewarding is that Your job as a white-collar defense attorney is to essentially have difficult conversations all the time.
0: Miranda is from Wales, Massachusetts. I'd never heard of it either. And we talk about her transition into being a white-collar defense attorney. Good morning, Miranda. How are you?
1: Good morning, Jim. I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm sane. I'm safe. Um, It's all good.
1: Terrific. Glad to hear it. So Miranda,
0: we're going to focus today on your transition from federal prosecutor to a currently white-collar defense lawyer. This is a transition that a good portion of the white-collar defense bar has made, but you also had a very interesting transition from private practice as a younger lawyer into the U.S. Attorney's Office. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So, prior joining the U.S. Attorney's Office, I'd spent about eight and a half years as an associate and then counsel at Wilmer Hale in Boston. And I had done primarily white-collar work in that during that time, and I'd had a terrific experience. I had great mentors, I worked on terrific cases, and all around thought that I had I was pretty fortunate in my experience as an associate to sort of have a combination of those things. Um, and so early on when I joined Wilmer Hale, I was assigned to a case where we represented an individual who was the subject of a federal investigation and later an SEC investigation, um, who'd worked for a company named Cabletron that later became Enteresis. I believe you know something about the matter.
0: I'm painfully aware of the matter, yes.
1: Yes, it was a lengthy matter. Um, and didn't end up well for, for many. But it was my first experience representing an individual and in a sort of multifaceted government investigation. And it was fascinating, and I really enjoyed it. And shortly after that matter came in, I began working on a matter for an individual who had been indicted along with uh, W.R. Grace and a number of other former executives um, for conduct resulting from a vermiculite mine in Libby, Montana. And that was a huge case and took about, it spanned about five years. Um, and that was my first experience working with a joint defense group. And it was a terrific experience and we worked with a number of lawyers from across the country, all of whom were fabulous. The group got, got along really well. There was a lot of collaboration. And I assumed that based on that experience, that's what all joint defense, joint defense groups and uh, basically were like going forward.
0: Uh, all, happy joint defense, uh, all happy joint defense groups are alike. All unhappy ones are different in many ways.
1: Yes, so that was one of the the first uh, learnings I had that everything does not always pan out the way it appears to be, Um, but that was a great experience and so our client in that case was the general counsel and we managed to have his trial severed from everyone else's because many of the other people, he wanted to rely on the legal advice he had provided the company and couldn't do that in the same trial without prejudicing WR Grace. So his trial was severed, and then the government ultimately dismissed the case against him after the company and all the other executives were acquitted and after a long trial.
0: So the government dismissed the case. Was, was William Barr the attorney general then?
1: He was not. He was not.
0: <laughs> I, hear, I hear he's pretty good for that kind of thing.
1: It was a good result for our client, and we were quite pleased with it. <laughs>
0: Great. And what what else did you work on? Some other interesting cases while you were in private practice the first time.
1: So I worked on a number of um, I worked on a number of criminal investigations of a variety of different companies. Um, but doing like, I did a lot of healthcare fraud work, um, and I did some civil work. Um, probably about fifteen percent. We did a little bit of um, you know I did some contract disputes. I did some um, securities fraud litigation things of that nature. Um, I represented another individual in a healthcare fraud case brought in, in here in the District of Massachusetts, um, where we represented one of the regional managers from the Stryker um, case. And so in that case, we went as far as opening statements, and shortly after opening statements, the cli- the government dismissed the case against my client there. So that Wait, was- time out.
0: So you represented three individuals, one of whom you managed to have not get indicted. One, the government indicted and eventually dismissed. And a third one, the government dismissed after opening statements. Did, why didn't you just retire after that third result? Because it's never going to be that successful for you in private practice this time.
1: I should have, right? And the probably uh, the reason I didn't is because I was in my early 30s at that point in time. And so I don't think I had the perspective to realize that things go downhill rapidly. Um, although many would have warned me that was the case. Um, but so the striker matter was about a year before I joined the office. So by the time I joined the office, that had basically been, you know, much of my experience was when the government indicts, they dismissed the charges sometime thereafter. Um, that did not prove to be a repeat experience.
0: So when you're working in private practice the first time, what what were your impressions of AUSAs and federal prosecutors?
1: So, when I was in private practice, I generally thought that prosecutors were pretty humorless, and that may not be the right word, but they were always Boring. dried and, excuse me? Boring, maybe? <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, but much of our experience was, you know, as an associate, you are, every time that you have a call with a prosecutor, you're gathered around a conference table, and there are three partners and five associates, and you're hanging on every word. And you know, you, your impression of the prosecutor at that time is that they're just so like, angry and mean. Um, you know, so that was sort of my experience going in.
0: Did you wanna be a federal prosecutor?
1: I didn't. In fact, I think I was probably the rare associate in the white collar space who did not want to be a federal prosecutor. And that was because in part, I really enjoyed the work I was doing. I was working for great clients. I loved the work. I really enjoyed the people I was working with. And so I didn't really have any burning desire to go become a, uh, to leave that situation and become a federal prosecutor. Um, And about five years in, one of my mentors sort of said in passing, you know, if you really want to be a partner in the white collar space, you need to be a federal prosecutor at some point. Like, that's a step you need to take. And I thought, why? That makes no sense. And his answer was, well, one, you, you know, it gives you good experience, but two, clients really like it. And it also provides sort of what could be your referral network going forward. But it, you know, it was almost like, this is an important step you have to take no matter what, if you really wanna be a partner. And I frankly thought it was like total bullshit, in part because the person who was delivering this message to me, also in passing, had never been a, prosecutor, a federal prosecutor himself. Um, so I sort of let it go. But then, about a year later, Wilmer sent me on a secondment to the Middlesex District Attorney's Office, where I was a line ADA in Malden District Court for six months. And it was wonderful. I loved every minute of it. It was a bit of a shit show, as district court often is. You know, you're just given a stack of cases every single morning for the first time, and you have to just stand up and move through them. Um, And that's the same with motions day and trial day. So I really loved the experience, and that's what prompted me to decide I wanted to be a prosecutor and to apply to the U.S. Attorney's Office.
0: So you apply and you eventually become an AUSA in the healthcare fraud unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston, correct?
1: Yes, although it was a bit, of a, it was a bit more of a tortured road than that. Um, I had my first interview in, I wanna say it was March of 2010. And I interviewed with four different AUSAs, and one of them was Tony Fuller, who was still in the office at the time. And I remember meeting him and him saying to me, look, you you seem to have a good application, but the best advice I can give you is be patient. You know, it took me two years from the time that I applied to actually get a job at the US Trans Office. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, that really sucks, poor Tony. I certainly hope that doesn't happen to me, And sure enough, it was 30 months from the day of that interview until the day I started at the U.S. Trans Office.
0: Did that background check uncover that time you tried to overthrow the United States?
1: I think that must have been it. Surely it could. There's no other reason, right?
0: So you become become a prosecutor. Um, Any difficult adjustments apart from the cash bar and shitty ziti at the holiday party?
1: So I think by the time I joined the office, they didn't even have shitty ziti at the parties anymore. Um, so maybe there's that. I would say, so in general, I'll preface this by saying that I don't take life advice from David Schumacher as a rule. But when I did join the office, he was in AUSA in the healthcare fraud unit alongside me. And I remember him telling me at one point that there's like a 12 to 18 month Learning curve, and with any job, but certainly with joining the U.S. Attorney's Office from a private law firm, and I found that to really be true because you really are, you know, even though I had come from Wilmer Hale, where I had worked on the other side of a lot of these cases, you really are sort of building cases from scratch, and so you you really are learning an entire new set of skills, and not just putting together a case on your own and learning to work with agents and develop those relationships so that they're productive. Um, but also, you're learning to get comfortable in court, you know, because you're in court so much more than you ever were in private practice. And so, you're learning to develop your own style and your own comfort while also learning to build cases for the first time. So, there was that transition, but that part is also fun. So, it wasn't, you know, an arduous or difficult time, per se.
0: Did, did, you, did you find that becoming a prosecutor affected you personally in any ways? I mean, when you're hanging around with the agents, did you immediately start swearing more or did you you always swear a lot?
1: I came to the office with uh, a pretty healthy swearing habit. So that was not a difficult transition.
0: Excellent. How did you handle the power?
1: Well, I like to think that my prior experiences representing individuals um, gave me a sufficient perspective to understand the impact of my role. And I tried to keep that perspective with me throughout my time at the office, recognizing that while I was doing my job and I may have a certain view of people and what, you know, what they did and their role in any entity organization, they're still human beings and are sort of processing and going through what it means to be on the, on the you know, other end of government investigation, whether you're a target of that or whether you're even just a witness or a subject all of it's stressful. And you, still, you see that when you were interviewing or proffering people. But I did try to keep that in mind. Um,
0: it can be hard, though. I remember the first day I became an AUSA, and uh, Mark Pearlstein explains to me, like, oh, these, these are grand jury subpoenas. You can just sign them, and the agent will give them to anyone in the country. And I thought, man, you could really mess some people up in this job. <laughs>
1: You can, and and I remember the first time I signed a subpoena. I feel like I was sort of aware of that. Like, wow, all I have to do is sign here, and this will. But I can make someone do something. Um, you know, I was certainly aware of the ripple effect that it caused. I'm probably even more acutely aware of that now. Um, but it also becomes the type of thing that, as you do your job as in, as an AUSA, you just write so many subpoenas. So at a certain point, you become you know, totally desensitized to it and you're just signing your name and half the time the agents are writing the attachments. Um, You know, you just, you issue so many subpoenas over your time that it sort of loses a bit of its impact for you.
0: And now when you're representing those people on the other side, uh, I think you realize a lot more that just getting a subpoena, even if you're only a witness, can freak people out. What did you like... Miranda, what did you like most about being a prosecutor? Uh,
1: Well, I love the autonomy, right? So that was, uh, you know, initially, I felt like for the first time in my life, I was truly practicing law, Um, you know, coming from a firm where it's not uncommon for five people to chime in and edit a three-sentence letter. So I, I really loved, especially initially, the ability to just practice law on my own. Um, but I really enjoyed building cases. I loved the camaraderie of working with agents and other people to, you know, to, to put together the components of a case. Um, and I really loved the trial work as well. I mean, I did a number of trials while I was there, and it was always really fun. And that's an experience that really is unique to something like the DOJ. I mean, you're just not going to get that level of trial experience at a private firm. Um, but
0: it was really the, fun for me. Sure. I think the autonomy is interesting, but it's also I felt to I felt sort of liberated from the perfection of big law. Um, I, I used to say like if you if you write a brief and there aren't like three or four typos in it, that probably means someone isn't getting indicted because you can't spend like hours and hours just you know caressing your briefs the way you have to do in big law.
1: Well, you definitely have a certain perspective as a prosecutor about just sort of getting your work done, right? You can, and I think it's almost impossible to bring the big firm mentality to something, to, to a job like being a line AUSA, because even the, the day your job as an AUSA is to really move cases and to investigate them. And sometimes as a big firm lawyer, and especially as a big firm associate, like your job is to just be perfect at all times. And that's not really what you need to do as an AUSA. You need to move your cases. You need to get them moving along. And you also need to learn to rely on people who may not have, you know, that exact same standard. Um, Do you watch Billions, Miranda? I've watched a couple of episodes. I can't say I've seen the entire series.
0: I I, I just started watching. I'm late to the party. But um, Chuck Rhodes, the fictional Southern District of New York U.S. attorney, says a couple of times, um, that he's, as, as is in his career as a prosecutor, he's proudest of the prosecutions that he hasn't brought. Now, he's definitely lying when he says that. <laughs> that we'll play out. But did you did you ever feel like that, or have any kind of um, sense of that kind of thought when you were a prosecutor? Maybe like sort of turning down cases or making tough decisions in the right the right way.
1: I did. I mean, you know, one of the things I even tell clients now is that, especially as a healthcare fraud prosecutor, you decline more cases than you bring. But your job is to really thoroughly investigate some cases. And I think one of the tensions you have as a prosecutor, and um, especially in the healthcare fraud space, but I think all prosecutors deal with this, is that when you have agents who have worked really hard to build up a case and you've been working alongside with them and you've invested sometimes years in those cases, it's really hard to thereafter say, We put together all these pieces, but this doesn't actually amount to a crime that we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. And that's a really hard place to be because all, you know, years of work has gone into building this case and you're ultimately saying, no, we're not going to bring it. So you end up having to, you know, not only make a tough choice yourself, and oftentimes you're invested in it, but, you know, you end up having to have hard conversations with agents and the others who've invested years of their lives in it as well. But, you know, there is an element of truth to that you're doing, you know, as long as you're doing the right thing and you feel like it's the right thing to do, there is an element of pride there. And no one wants to bring a case that they don't feel that they can get behind 100 percent.
0: When you were on trial as an AOSA, uh, did you introduce yourself to the jury and say, I'm Miranda Hooker, I represent the United States?
1: (laughs) I did not, nor would I ever. And it's funny you asked that. So I I am reminded of a moment where um, I was sitting at council table with my trial team and we were about to start openings. And one of the defense attorneys came up to us and sort of leaned over the table and whispered, you know, I'm so jealous you get to stand up and say, my name is X and I represent the United States. And we all sort of sat back and thought, well, God, we would never do that. Um, But I was actually of the sort of further school of thought where I never introduced myself at all. And in part, because it's sort of not really my style, but also I learned early on um, while I was at the office from one of my mentors there, that as, a, as an AUSA and a government lawyer, it's not about you and who you are doesn't really matter. You're really the narrator of a story and your job is to put forth that story in components and argument and facts, but it's not about who you are as a person. And I think that's really true. And I always I know there are also people who like to sort of start with some big, bold, you know, attention grabbing opening and then pause and say, now, let me take a moment and introduce myself. And I always think, who cares who you are is so irrelevant to this.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. It's always been a pet peeve of mine when prosecutors say they represent the United States. I mean, you know, they have every advantage walking into the courtroom. The jury thinks that the guy did it because it's gone this far. And then to, like, stand up there and say, I represent the United States, like they're freaking Benjamin Franklin negotiating a treaty (laughs) with the the British, Uh, it's just, I I find it really obnoxious.
1: (laughs) I think the solution to that, Jim, is the next time you are on trial, you should stand up and introduce yourself and say, I also represent the United States, and I'm here to defend the Constitution. Oh, and by the way, this guy has been accused of something he didn't do.
0: Equally justifiable, in my opinion. (laughs) So, you're an AUSA, you're making healthcare fraud cases, um, you had a great previous experience in private practice. Are you planning? Do you have a game plan? I'm going to do this for five, seven, 10 years, and then go back to the, the good side and represent people against the government.
1: That was never my plan. And I, I really enjoyed being in the USA. And so the entire time I was there, I wasn't thinking of leaving at all. And certainly at the beginning, I was prepared to be a lifer. Um, I had no intentions of leaving, and I really loved what I was doing. And I worked with great people, and I enjoyed almost every single day of the job. Um, there did come a time sort of towards the end where I wasn't looking to leave, but I was thinking to myself, hmm, I could see myself leaving in a few years. But I also wasn't you know, sufficiently uh, motivated around that idea to be looking or, or you know, taking any actions around that. And I was still, as I said, enjoying what I was doing and the people I was working with. Um, and what happened is that I just was presented with this opportunity, which was to join Pepper Hamilton and build a white collar practice in the Boston office. And it struck me as a unique one and also sufficiently hard that um, it just seemed like something I couldn't pass up. And so while I was somewhat apprehensive about whether I was ready to leave and it was um, sort of the right time for me, it just seemed like too good of an opportunity to pass up. And even as I was getting ready to leave the office and was telling people that I was leaving, my mentor, the same one who um, taught me to never introduce myself at trial, told me that you know, he sort of had similar experiences where he sort of jumped sooner than he thought he would at various um, parts of his, or throughout various components of his career and it always worked out. Um, and I think that's been the, the case for me as well. I'm, I'm happy I left when I did, even though I wasn't looking and it ended up being, I think the Pepper's been a great fit. And so it was, in, in, it was sort of, I mean, after the fact, I think it was the right timing, but it wasn't something I was planning on.
0: And what do you like most about the defense work that you're doing now?
1: Well, I can say what I don't enjoy is billing time again. That has definitely been probably the hardest part. Um, But, you know, it wasn't a hard transition to come back into private practice because I've been there before. So it's not as though I was joining a big firm for the first time in my life. And much of it feels pretty familiar. I think the thing that's most difficult about being on this side that you forget when you are in a USA but that's also the most rewarding is that you know, your job as a white-collar defense attorney is to essentially have difficult conversations all the time. Um, and especially when you represent individuals, you're not just their lawyer and advocate, but in many cases, you're often their therapist. And especially if they don't have professional ones, they, they just come to you. And they are managing in their own lives the stress of, of even being a witness to our discussion earlier you know, in a government investigation. So you have a lot of difficult conversations and you really are um, sort of charged with guiding someone through what is otherwise a really stressful process that they know nothing about. And I think in many respects that goes for work when you're guiding companies as well, is, you know, for many people, this is just a foreign process. And so, you know, and it's anxiety provoking. So you just have to be patient and help people along the way.
0: And do you think the advice that you got when you were uh, at Wilmer that if you want to be in this for the long run, you should take your run at being in AOSA, now that you're on the other side, do you think that advice was good advice?
1: So we do. As much as I hate to admit it because I'm a bit of a contrarian, um, I found it to be great advice. And I think that it has exponentially helped me in my career. It's, you know, spending five and a half years at DOJ made me a better lawyer in every respect. It gave me an entirely different skill set than I would have had. Um, You know, and I know a lot of people don't make that choice and for many, can't make that choice for a variety of reasons. Um, It turns out there's like a slight pay differential between uh, working for DOJ and working for a private firm.
0: Uh Um,
1: (laughs) Slight. But, you know, I, I think it was a wonderful and terrific decision for me. And I also, it gave me, you know, incredible trial experience. And also the experience of building cases on the other side. It also gives you a perspective when you're back in the in private practice on interacting with the government, right? Like you sort of you can understand when you're advising clients, like, look, you know, the prosecutor isn't going to get worked up if there are 97 documents in this in this production versus 104, right? Like you have a better sense of what really matters to a prosecutor on the other side as working through you know, various stages of investigations. And I think that's been really helpful
0: to clients. Um, I guess the answer to this next question is no, but if you had any issues in sort of adjusting to a criminal defense mindset, you know, as a prosecutor, you always tried to do justice. And now as a, as a white collar defense attorney, uh, the last thing you're, you want to do is justice. You want to do what's best for your client.
1: So I don't think I have had a difficult time adjusting. Um, I will say that being, you know, recently out of the office, I'm in the position where I know a lot of the prosecutors who are managing and leading and charging the cases that uh, my clients are up against. And so, you know, I think that there are pros and cons with that. One, it helps me to have, you know, more productive conversations with them. You know, on the other side, I think oftentimes both clients and others think prosecutors are just pure evil and like truly out to get them. And I still see a human side of them. And maybe that's slowly going to evade, you know, evaporate over time. But you know, that is the, the one, you know, piece where when you come out of the U S Attorney's office and you're going back into private practice, like sometimes the prosecutors are in fact still your friends and people who you don't think are inherently evil. And, you know, you're sort of constantly faced with um, clients and others who have the opposite perspective.
0: That's good to hear. I, I, think also, I think some AUSA struggle with the transition, at least for a while. I'm mean, going to actually remember in the uh, Cabletron and Terrorist Investigation that you mentioned earlier, that there was a, a former colleague of mine in the office who was representing a witness, and the witness um, had decided to plead guilty. I remember talking to the former colleague on the phone and he said, yeah, I can't remember the witness's name. Let's say it's Bob. The colleague said, yeah, Bob's trying to, Bob's going to do the right thing. But of course, is how AUSA is talking about somebody cooperating. And I was like, dude, it's not the right thing anymore. It's like the wrong thing. Why are you doing that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I have that perspective. Um, I actually remember even when I was in the office once, um, Someone who was supervising a case I was, um, I was managing, we were talking about whether or not this defendant would plead, and if so, how? Like, would he sign an agreement or just plead open? And the AUSA, who was supervising me, who'd been in the office for like 40 years, sort of said, you know, I don't know why anybody would ever sign up with a plea agreement. We're not going to dismiss charges or do something that they can't. Like, I don't know why anybody would ever plead. And at the time, I thought that was kind of funny. I'm like, I guess that's an interesting perspective. Um, but, you know, where I come from is, I think, as well, as a defense attorney, your job is to guide someone through the process. And, you know, even when the government brings a case, it may be a strong case and it may be a case that's been well done, but there's no perfect case. And so your job is to really figure out what those holes are and help your client get to the best end point.
0: Miranda, looking back now on your career as a federal prosecutor, do you have any regrets about the way you handled anything?
1: I don't have any regrets about cases that I brought um, or charges along the way or how cases were resolved. Um, there was one moment, sort of pro- shortly before I left the office, where I was taking over a case from another AUSA, and it was it, it was a case that had been going on for a while and it was getting to the point where it was it needed to go to trial, and so all I knew about the case was that was what I read in the Pross memo and what the AUSA told me about the case, which was basically it's an incredibly strong case, um, and this guy's really guilty. And so his lawyer came in to meet with me and say, you know, look, he would like to resolve this matter, and my response was something along the lines of, well, that's because there's no, there's no defense. And it turned out that I was wrong, which the defense attorney pointed out, and I hate admitting that I'm wrong, by the way. Um, so this is a pivotal moment in my personal growth. Um, but not only was I wrong, but it was also a pretty cavalier and flip way to respond to someone who is coming to the government and saying, look, I want to accept responsibility for what I did, understanding that that's going to result in my spending time in jail. And that, so that response, I think, probably wasn't warranted. And even thinking back on it today, I wish I had responded differently.
0: Well, as far as regrets go, that's a pretty minor one, and that's that's uh, that's not a bad one to have. Brandon, <laughs> it's, been, it's been great having you. I can't let you go without asking you the mandatory guest question. What's the first concert you went to? Who'd you see? Where was the concert, and who'd you go with?
1: So this is a really embarrassing answer, but Perfect. I grew up in Western Mass, and so I was somewhat sheltered. Uh, my first concert was the Spin Doctors. at Riverside Park in Agawam, Massachusetts. It was 1993 and I don't actually remember who I went with, but I'm assuming that it would have been my boyfriend at the time because I didn't have a car and he did and I would have had no other means of getting there.
0: Miranda, it's been great talking to you. Enjoy the rest of your quarantine.
1: Thanks, Jim. Great to see you.
0: Thanks for listening, people. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Miranda Hooker. This is the ninth and final episode of season 1. I hope you enjoyed however many episodes you listen to, download, subscribe, praise, etc. We'll be back with fresh content in a few weeks.